Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This week's episode contains conversations about sexual assault and rape. So do listen with caution. If someone doesn't want to have sexual intercourse, the body shuts down. The body will not permit that to happen, unless a lot of damage is inflicted. The victim in this case, although she wasn't necessarily willing, she didn't put up a fight. That was Judge Derek Johnson in 2008, completely misunderstanding biology and psychology. She was not in any sense pinned down... She could easily, physically, have made life harder, and as a result of this, it did not constitute rape. That's Judge Tolson, who did not believe a woman who said that the father of her son had raped her in 2020. Women who say no do not always mean no. It is not just a question of saying no, it is a question of how she says it, how she shows and makes it clear. If she doesn't want it, she only has to keep her legs shut and she would not get it without force. And there will be marks of force being used. And this is Mr Justice Wilde in 1982 demanding physical marks on a woman in order to believe she was raped. I'm Philippa Gregory, and my new book, Normal Women, looks at nine centuries of women's history in England, from the Norman Conquest in 1066 till the present day. I'm interested in the women we don't know, their everyday lives, and this is an episode about the history of rape, how it has changed through history, and how we see it now. This is Normal Women Think About Rape. With me today is historian Joanna Burke, an academic expert on sexuality and sexual crime. Her book, Rape, A History, was key reading for my normal women research. Also with us is Soma Sara, an anti-rape activist and founder of an online platform that gives victims of sexual assault and harassment a space to anonymously share their experiences in the form of testimonies. The website is called Everyone's Invited. And Sommer has written a book of the same name. Together, we're going to look at the history of the everyday attack on women that all women fear. Joanna, it's not even an everyday attack. It's more than one rape per day in the UK, isn't it? Yeah, rape is a surprisingly uh, common occurrence in societies everywhere in the world. In Britain and America, for example, we know that one in every five women in their lifetime will be either raped or sexually assaulted. What this means, though, is that all of us have either experienced it, and we certainly know someone who's experienced it. So this permeates all of our society. 
As part of my research into this podcast, I wanted to look at women's fear of rape. I was looking at statistics, and what was really, really chilling is when I put in as a, as a search term, women thinking about rape, what I got was a, some academic work and quite a lot of work on women fantasizing about rape as a desirable experience, which just seemed to me to be part of the whole difficulty of talking about something which to most women is a completely taboo act of dread. I found one survey in Edinburgh in 1992 that said that 68% of women say they were very worried about being raped, and most of them fear being raped by a stranger. Only a tiny percentage of women said they felt safe when alone at night. 92% of the women said they didn't feel safe on the streets of their own town. And a survey of women in America in 1980 showed that 80% thought about rape did things like hold their keys in their hand when going to the car or walking to the front door, and a quarter of them completely avoided being out at night. Yes, I think that every woman, girl, can connect with that sense of anxiety and fear and has experienced it. You know, that fear that is so real from the age of 10, let younger, you know, begins with being catcalled on the street and being followed home and being touched and grabbed and groped and looked at and stared at. There is always that kind of sense of paranoia that lives in the back of your mind when you know that the statistics and the reality of women's experiences show that sexual violence is so prevalent and real and universal. Of course, there is a fear. Another thing that I noted that was really interesting I found from the reading of the testimonies is this downplaying of experiences. I cannot tell you how many testimonies began with, this story isn't as bad as half the rest of the stories on this site, however, and then proceeds to detail the most traumatic, triggering, violent experience that you'd read. And and we'd see that over and over and over again. So I think there is a kind of a downplaying and, yeah, um, an unwillingness to come to terms with, I guess, the reality of an experience. And maybe that's a survival mechanism too. This is the thing that really just permeates every woman's life, these fears and constrains what we think we can do, where we can go, at what time we can do those things. And, you know, one in every five Hollywood films shows a rape scene. So from a very young age, we are women and girls are being bombarded with not only images of rape, but this message that we should be frightened of it. You know, we need to make sure that we've got the best locks on our doors and you know, we, the windows are closed at night. You know, so we go into our homes, we close and we lock up. And then, of course, we turn on the TV and we watch rape scenes all the time. Do you think there's a romantic element which goes along with rape, the sort of the selling of rape as a... um, I'm thinking of the scene in Gone with the Wind. It's not that easy, Scarlett. You know, the two incredibly beautiful chief characters have a row. You turn me out while you chase Ashley Wilkes, while you dream of Ashley Wilkes. This is one night you're not turning me out. And he sweeps her up in his arms and he takes her off to his bedroom. And in the book, it's clear that he rapes her. And in the film, it's clear that it resolves the marital tension. It's, it, it makes them both happy. Soma? I think with older generations, obviously I'm, I can't speak for you, but I think that there weren't as extreme representations. Obviously, you've spoken about rape in films, but it wasn't the same as like 
pornography being accessible to you anytime, anyplace, anywhere, to any age, and repeatedly being bombarded with that, repeatedly having access to that online. And I think that's different to kind of fumbling your way through your first sexual interaction as like a young, naive 15, 14 year old when you're like being repeatedly shown that this is how to have sex. I think for a lot of young people, and it's not excusing anyone's behavior, but for a lot of young people, specifically young boys, I think that they thought that that was normal because that was what they were watching. Essentially, the place where young we like young people were taught how to have sex is very extreme hardcore pornography and the kind of sexual scripts that exist there are often completely lacking consent a lot of scripts of like submission and domination and violence like an eroticization of, of sexual violence what we're seeing is you know pornography being kind of transmuted into the lives of young people and that is how a lot of young people are having sex. And of course, the dramatizations and fictionalizations and even news reporting always stresses the stranger in the dark street rape. But in fact, that's a tiny proportion of rapes. As we know, Joanna, almost all rapes happen in a woman's home and the rapist is someone she knows. Yeah, in the vast majority of cases, the, the statistics differ between 80 and, and 95% um, of um, acts of rape and sexual assault are carried out by people we, we know and love, as they say. So, you know, that is the norm. But, you know, we don't want to admit that because what that also does is it inserts this fear of the rapist in our midst, in the bedroom next to us. And that, of course, is particularly frightening for all of us. Extremely frightening. Summer, do you think in order to avoid being fearful of rape, we try to ignore it and not think about it? I think one of the things that really powerfully showed that was the resistance that we found when we were talking about the phrase rape culture. We had like a fierce backlash against that phrase. I think people are made to feel really uncomfortable it's taboo and people um, just naturally really didn't connect with it and it just made people angry. And I think there is a cognitive dissonance there. People don't like to come to terms with the fact that they might have something to do with rape or rape culture and understand that they are actually inevitably complicit if you're existing in our society where rape culture is universal. It doesn't mean that, you know, you yourself are necessarily um, perpetrating rape but it means that you're you know being raised and socialized in a patriarchy where misogynistic attitudes are creating an environment that normalizes sexual violence and rape and allowing rape to to exist and prevail so when you use the phrase rape culture you mean that rape has become almost seen as an everyday occurrence in our society that it's accepted as a fact of life by almost everyone um hopefully we would eventually get to a time where people would agree that it's an everyday occurrence, but I would define it as when attitudes, thoughts and beliefs have the effect of normalising sexual violence and trivialising sexual violence. And I would view it as an incremental culture where everything is connected, where you have um, the behaviours and the language of dehumanisation creating a, a wider environment where violence is, is existing and dehumanising attitudes lead to dehumanising treatment of individuals. 
We tend to think that society has improved over time, but the medieval world thought of rape as an attack on a man's property. So rape was not at all accepted or excused. It was a serious property offence, not a semi-private act revealed by an allegation by a woman. Nobody says to a man, you wanted your property to be attacked. Your property has a bad reputation. Your property shouldn't have been out at night in that lane. This is the law for compensation for rape at the time of King Ethelbert, England, 589. If anyone carries off a maiden by force, he is to pay to the guardian 50 shillings and afterwards buy from the guardian his consent to the marriage. If she is betrothed to another man at a bride price, he is to pay 20 shillings compensation. If she is assaulted on the road, he is to pay 35 shillings and 15 shillings to the king. If anyone lustfully seizes a nun, either by her clothes or by her breast, without her permission, he shall pay as compensation twice the sum we have fixed in the case of a woman belonging to the laity. The law you, you just gave there was, is really very important because the greatest, the most valuable thing a woman owns is her chastity. And does her chastity belong to her or does it belong to the father or the husband? These are really big questions that have been debated right up until very modern times. Because of this emphasis on chastity, on virginity, the cost of being raped is actually potentially higher for a unmarried woman than it is for a married woman. We've seen major changes, though, over time from a shift from against the will of a woman to without her consent, which is a very modern notion. So when we have that earlier thing, laws saying it's about overcoming the will of a woman, then the whole emphasis was on physical injury because you had to prove non-consent. And the way you prove non-consent was by wounds on the body. So a woman was expected to fight to the death. And we still see this as late as the 1990s, where, you know, if you get a case going to court and if there are not physical wounds, then the chances of any prosecution are extremely thin, totally unlikely. As we heard earlier, the Justice Wilde quote, demanding physical marks on a woman in order to believe her. And we see this goes back a long time. Here is legal expert Henry Bracton in 1235. She must go at once, and while the deed is newly done, with hue and cry, to the neighbouring townships, and there show the injury done to her to men of good repute, the blood and her clothing stained with blood and her torn garments. And in the same way, she ought to go to the reeve of the hundred, the king's sergeant, the coroners and the sheriff. Let her make appeal at the first county court, unless she can at once make her complaint directly to the Lord King or his justices, where she will be told to sue at the county court. Of course, these are almost impossible conditions for reporting. From the earliest medieval times, the law made deliberate obstacles to women reporting rape and getting a conviction. And in some cases, your attacker could prevent you from getting help. In the 13th century, one woman, Rose of Urchester in Northamptonshire, known in her village as a young virgin, went through all this nearly impossible process to report promptly. The report says she departed all bloody. She named her attacker 
as John de Clifford, and when she called for her neighbours to arrest him, he kidnapped her. The report says... The jurors say on their oath that the aforesaid John de Clifford and the other unknown men took the aforesaid Rose wickedly and in felony and assault of forethought at the village of Urchester in the county of Northampton and led her against her will to Middleton in the county of Oxford and there raped her virginity. John took the aforesaid Rose and imprisoned her in a certain upper room in the aforesaid house and there shut her up securely. John kept Rose imprisoned in Oxfordshire for two years and when she escaped, raised the hue and cry and brought her rapist kidnapper to court, his defence was a technical one. That Rose did not name a definite day or a definite year or a definite place when he had raped her. And the court agreed. She had indeed failed to report him while he had her imprisoned and John walked free. But on this rare occasion, the intervention of the king called John back to court where a second trial convicted him of rape and fined him £10. The fine was paid to the king, not to Rose. But Rose was well known to be a maid of her village. In other words, she was a virgin. This meant she could access some form of justice. But had her rape resulted in pregnancy, her case wouldn't have come to court, would it, Joanna? There's all these questions that you see in the past about if a woman becomes pregnant. Isn't that proof that, in fact, she consented to the act? So if you look, certainly prior to the 18th century, there's this idea the female body is similar to the male body. They're simply the invert. So a woman has the same genitals as a man, except they're inside, not outside. Both have the seed. So just as a man needs to ejaculate, have an orgasm in order to impregnate a woman, so a woman has to have an orgasm in order for her seed to be fertilized. Often trials were actually paused for nine months to see if she got pregnant, because if she got pregnant, then of course that must have been proof that she had pleasure, that she had had an orgasm and therefore that she had consented. I know it sounds incredible to our modern ears as we have a better understanding of biology and now know that women are made pregnant as a result of rape. And yet, even with these reporting restrictions and superstitions, medieval courts had a higher rape conviction rate than modern ones. A study of all the rape records from 1208, so going back a long time across the country, shows that 21% of men accused of rape were found guilty. But, I mean, these statistics are really shocking. We don't have to go back that far to make the argument that, in fact, in terms of law, in terms of the way justice operates, things have got a lot worse. So, for example, in Britain, in the 1960s, one in every three cases of rape that got to court ended in a conviction. 1970s, one in four. 1980s, one in six. 1990s, one in ten. Today, it's 2%. So things have got worse. We've had 40 years of feminist activism about rape. We've had 40 years of really good legal reforms, you know, date rape, um, spousal rape, and all those sorts of things, and yet, thing and education, and things have got significantly worse. And one of the things we need, I think, to think very carefully about is why that might be.
When Eleanor of Aquitaine came to England in 1152 to marry Henry II, she brought with her a literary tradition all the way from the Arab world, fin amour, or courtly love. The poems were love stories about a closely guarded heroine and the noble young man who adores her. Their love, expressed in poetic dialogue and courageous acts, attains a high level of spirituality and finally, union with God. Women in courtly love stories were perfect, without sin, and capable of stirring chaste passion in the hero. In The Knight's Tale, in Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, two noble men fall in love with a lady, Emily, the moment they see her in the garden. That Emily, that fairer was to seen than is the lily upon his stalker green. Young Emily, that fairer was of mien than is the lily on its stalk of green, and fresher in her colouring that strove with early roses in a Maytime grove. I know not which was fairer of the two. Chaucer's young knights, like the lovers in early Finn Amor stories, are ready to die for love. And with a deep and piteous sigh, he said, The freshness of her beauty strikes me dead. Hers that I see, roaming in yonder place. Unless I gain the mercy of her grace, unless at least I see her day by day, I am but dead. There is no more to say. Inam but deed, there is no more to say. Over time, the courtly love stories became more sexually explicit, more realistic and more violent, and the heroines became less active, even failing to defend themselves. The metaphor of a noble youth finding his way into a castle and picking the rose in the walled garden changed to become a realistic fiction about the siege of a castle, a breaking down of doors and entering without consent. The heroine was no longer icily commanding a lover's service. The hero was no longer pleading for a glance, satisfied with a lifetime of service. Now he was a housebreaker. He no longer found a rose in a walled garden. He found a vulnerable woman in her bedroom, and he had sex with her, despite her protestations. What had begun as an elite art form, playing with the idea of worshipping an unobtainable, idealised woman, developed into stories of violent entry. The stories spread into other forms, paintings, plays, jousts and masks, spreading countrywide far beyond the great houses, and even into fairy tales, Sleeping Beauty, kissed when she was unconscious, comes from an original Italian story when the comatose heroine is raped and made pregnant by a total stranger. Beauty and the Beast The original story, Beauty, is forced to live with the beast because of his fatal threats against her family. Rape as a theme in literature, and now in all forms of art, has been described as romantic and even glamorised. Soma, do you see this in the modern world as well, the glamorisation of violence? Definitely seeing the glamorisation of violence in media and popular culture and art and music the language that's used and the imagery that we're bombarded with. I'm just thinking of the song like Blurred Lines, the kind of back and forth. If you just think about the lyrics of that song, it's meant to be like a fun, silly song about sex, but 
it's about rape culture. It's about, you know, I know you want it. I know you want it. I'm here to domesticate you. And like, it, it's just everywhere, <laughs> like um, in popular culture and totally normalized. You know, it doesn't look like the beautiful women in the castle being romanticized by a knight in the, but it's the same kind of ideas and distributions of power, I think. And a lack of consent is still existing. I don't want to give the singer Robin Thicke airtime, but for those of you who haven't heard his hit Blurred Lines, he repeatedly tells a woman that he knows she wants it. For me, it's really a rapist's anthem. Initially, the video went really viral and it was incredibly controversial because it was saying that it, it glorified rape culture and it was over the top and the main model, Emily Ratajkowski, actually wrote later on that she was sexually assaulted on set. Robin Thicke hasn't addressed these allegations despite previous requests for comment, but it really plays into the bigger picture of how women are treated, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it is rape culture. That's what it is. It's the attitudes and beliefs leading to the actual experience of violence. She was groped by the main singer without consent. So I think that's a very modern example. It's it's an exact example <laughs> yeah. of the translation from the art to the life. So it goes from a music video that glamorizes and excuses rape to a sexual assault, from a form of art to life. And that's exactly what I say happens in the medieval world, from the troubadour songs of courtly rape to real life. You actually see the language transfer in a court report of 1481, a Sussex court, when William Pye of Lewis, a clerk, just a low-level churchman, was accused of two assaults. One was on a member of the jury who was supposed to be hearing his case. The clerk of the court, writing in Latin, recorded what happened. He made an assault on Thomas Piper, one of the said jurymen, by force and arms, viz. with sticks and knives, and struck wounded and maltreated him against the peace of the Lord King. It's a standard description of violence, but when the clerk of the court recorded the assault on a woman, Alice Martin, the tone of the report changes. Alice Martin had been William Pye's mistress, and the court heard that he broke into her home at Southover, near Lewis, where she lived with her husband, Thomas Martin. And then and there made an assault on Alice, wife of the said Thomas, and with his stones stoned her and struck her, and with his carnal lance wounded her and maltreated her so that her life was despaired of against the peace of the Lord King. In the poetic language conceals the violence of the attack, William Pye may have stoned his former lover or he may have sexually assaulted her with his stones, his testicles. He certainly violently raped her. She was so severely injured that her life was despaired of. But the clerk tells the evidence in the voice of the courtly love poets. The penis is described as his carnal lance, as if it were a joust. Between the clerk... William the Rapist and Alice, who he violently raped, and us are centuries of deliberate confusion over whether a man can stop before satisfaction and if a woman's no does indeed mean no, only to find that her assault is later described in the language of love as an excess of desire that no man can resist. Joanna, do you think there is a sort of an overlay of the language of love onto the language of rape and that that's one of the things that causes the difficulty for us to understand it? 
I think there is an overlay of the language. I mean, even in courts today, words like seduction are used as though you know this was a consensual event. So there is this overlay, and it is raced, and it is classed, all of these issues. So, you know, the, the class aspect is something that, in courts I'm talking about here, is something that is really quite astounding, I think, because, and you can also see a change over time. So if you look at medical jurisprudence textbooks, for example, there's a phrase that they use time and again, and it resonates with what you've been talking now about the lance. And that is, is a phrase that these, these textbooks use, which is, you can't sheathe a sword into a vibrating scabbard. So in other words, the penis becomes the sword. The vagina and the vulva is sort of this um, scabbard that if it just vibrates, um, a rape can't take place. Now, what I find really interesting is when that language starts to change in these textbooks, and this starts to change in the 1890s, where all of a sudden... When they are quoting that you can't, you know, sheath a sword into a vibrating scabbard, all of a sudden they change the language and they say, "Oh, but you can if you're if you're um, a, a woman of distinction." Um, so, in other words, they start making a class distinction between, you know, your working class woman who, if she just vibrates, she can, you know, stop the attack, versus your delicate middle class women. So you see these shifts that are occurring, but you know, you got the that that sword metaphor, you know, from the fifth century all the way to the 2010s, actually. Absolutely. Working class women are considered fair game for upper class rapists for centuries. Still to come on Normal Women, we'll be delving into the songbook of Henry VIII for a cheery tune that is far from innocent. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to Normal Women with me, Philippa Gregory, and my guests, historian Joanna Burke of Birkbeck University and Soma Sara, founder of Everyone's Invited. Here's a song about an upper-class man meeting a milkmaid in the 1400s. Hey, trolly-lolly-lo, hey, maid, whither go you? I go to the meadow to milk my cow. Then at the meadow I will you meet. To gather the flowers, both fair and sweet. 
This song from the later 15th century starts innocently enough. Boy meets girl on a country lane and takes a shine to her. But it doesn't take long for him to demand her virginity. You have my heart, say what you will. Wherefore you must my mind fulfil. And grant me here your maidenhead, or else I shall for you be dead. When the milkmaid refuses, he promises he will spare her this time, but next time she must beware. Then for this once I shall you spare. Then for this once I shall you spare. But the next time you must beware. How in the meadow yet milk your cow. Adieu, farewell, and kiss me now. Unbelievably, that's from a songbook from the musicians at the court of Henry VIII. The King of England, who prided himself on chivalry, agreed with his subjects that working-class women could be threatened with sex and their refusal meant nothing. There's a rumour from the time that Henry's then-favourite Thomas Culpepper raped the wife of a parkkeeper, and when someone tried to arrest him, the man was killed in the struggle. It was said that the king had pardoned Culpepper both for the rape and the killing. The use of working-class women, with or without their full consent, becomes almost official in the Victorian period when the myth of sexual desire being solely a male issue gets merged with the myth that it's bad for men's health for them not to have sexual gratification, that the man-can't-stop myth becomes really powerful and inspires criminologist William Bonger to say in 1872... Every normally constituted man would be a born rapist if the sexual appetite could find no other means of satisfaction. But a hundred years after this, people started redefining rape and asking if it were perhaps not an act of excessive, uncontrollable desire, but one of power. Sommer, do you see rape as a way of oppressing women in a very immediate and personal way? Yes, I do. But then when I'm thinking about the the testimonies, the many testimonies that I've read and the examples that I've seen, the lack of understanding of consent is very clear. I, I don't know if it's correct to frame it in this way, but maybe like an unconscious act of power in that absence of knowledge for a younger generation that have kind of learned about sex through like hardcore pornography and a really highly sexualized culture where, yeah, that they weren't really aware of understood essentially consent or they thought it was normal because that was what they were being shown as normal in porn. But yeah, I do think it is an act of power. I mean, what I find what you're saying really yeah. horrifying, of course, and quite yeah. extraordinary. So it sounds almost like it's an unconscious act of power. It's like, is it the question that these young men are not getting consent because they, they haven't troubled to worry whether they need it? Yes. I, I'm, I'm speaking from the experience of, from what I experienced, from my peers' experience and what I've read in the testimonies. 
Can I just come in here? Because, I mean, absolutely what you're saying really resonates with my work strongly. When we're talking about you know, questions about rape and power, there's also a history to that whole debate within feminism and within sexuality thought more generally. You know, and you're talking really eloquently about these individual relationships between sex and power and how that's negotiated and how you learn about these things. But of course, there's also a broader picture about sex and power, which states that rape is an instrument of power by men against women and girls. And that broader sort of more structural argument, which was, of course, the argument of what we call the second wave feminists, which has generated a huge debate about men hating, for example. So young boys that you're talking about, and I've spoken to many of these young boys in sex education classes, you know, they don't like to hear this idea that all men are either rapists um, rape fantasists or beneficiaries of a rape culture because, of course, they want to be loving people. They want to have good sex and they're not getting it. They're getting the lessons that they are learning, as you say, from pornography. But I think the final thing I want to say about the sex and power issue is you know, one wave of feminism was all about rape is about power. It's not about sex. And I'm very sympathetic to, to that view. Obviously, I think it is. But it does beg the question, well, why didn't he just hit her in the face? And so many victims, the fact that it is about sex and their sexual their sexuality is actually the relevant thing. It is different from a punch in the face. So, you know, I think there's an, a new wave of, of feminists who are saying, actually, we need to acknowledge that it's not only about power, it's also about sexuality. And the sexuality that we are learning, or a lot of particularly young people are learning from pornography. I think that's really interesting what you're saying, because the idea of rape being about power is implying the kind of idea of overt violence and like a physical overpowering. However, so many modern representations of sexual violence as represented within the testimonies on Everyone's Invited, there is so much more a variety of experience in like that kind of example of, of overt physical violence is actually seems to be a minority. And a lot of the stories are intoxication and there's a lot of drugs and alcohol involved and a lot of like unconsciousness or victims freezing or not being able to fight you know it's just like so yeah so much more complex than just that single vision of rape being that idea of a kind of physical overpowering. I mean what you're yeah. saying which is fascinating <laughs> to me is that it's a much more diverse crime than probably I mean certainly feminists decided to read it as and there was a good reason for feminists saying like let's look at it as an act of power because that's certainly how it represented them but what you're saying is that there are probably as you couldn't call it a crime of one thing or another given the testimonies that you see of this multiplicity of experiences do you see it ever as an act of desire do you think that there is authentic sexual desire on the part of the man it, it, it just sounds to me, I, I'm choking on it because it sounds to me like what rapists say. It just didn't go well. I mean, it's really hard because you don't want to get into that area of that being an excuse that they have an uncontrollable sexual appetite and desire because obviously that's really wrong. But I do think that in so many of the cases of young people, they believe that what they were doing was normal or they just didn't really have an understanding of consent. 
But then again, it's really not an excuse because they should. And I also really resonate with what you were saying about the idea of boys and men feeling attacked and alienated. Everyone is a victim in a sense. Obviously, everything about everyone's invited is survivor first is a platform for them. But I think it's really important to acknowledge that we're all in this together and that we're all victims of a culture that is normalizing and trivializing sexual violence and where, you know, extremist hardcore pornography has been mainstreamed. And that's where young people are learning to have sex. I think we need to all take responsibility and recognize ourselves as victims and as perpetrators as well. When we look at the 19th century, a change in the law designed to help defendants in court had a terrible effect on rape trials, which last till today, making it harder and harder for an injured woman to get a hearing. In 1836, a new law ruled that all defendants in court had the right to have a defence lawyer to speak for him. Rape cases now became a theatre in which highly educated men interrogated mostly poor, working-class women about their character, reliability and history. The rapist lawyers could publicly accuse a woman of regret at having agreed to have sex or trying to entrap a man into marriage or sexual provocation or prostitution. The person who has complained of the crime is the one who is being most intently examined without anyone to support her. Joanna. These are highly influential elite textbooks which are used in courts. But one of my favorites, one of the most disgusting ones, I think, is a, a claim that, you know, you the jurors ought to watch the woman as she is giving evidence. Is she wearing lipstick? Does she how does she cross her legs when she is sitting giving evidence? This whole culture of observing the woman for the signs of what the man did, um, that somehow she must have wanted it, she must have enticed him. And there was a a huge survey that was done just a few years ago, which um, showed that one third of women thought that if another woman, of course, had been wearing a short skirt and had then subsequently been raped, that somehow she was partly responsible. One third of women thought that. These are things that are permeating our entire society, and they are going to be difficult to to dislodge. Soma, do your testimonies talk about the experience of making accusations, and is that difficult? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the most significant themes within the testimonies how survivors are re-traumatized when they report or when they attempt to, to make accusations and how they're shamed, victim blamed, ostracized, isolated by their communities, by their families, by their school communities and they're not believed and how traumatic that experience itself is it's often worse than the experience of violence itself. Psychologists can call it a secondary assault. I think it just goes to show how powerful these rape myths are. One of the most kind of profound things about everyone's invited. So many people are writing, this is the first time I've ever spoken or written about my experience on an anonymous platform online. Like, what does that say about the world that we live in that they can't, go to their mum or dad or friend or 
the police. Like it's it's really devastating situation that the only place where they feel safe to share is is an anonymous platform because there is so much shame and stigma and shaming in wider society in their lives. We as a community need to think much more creatively about how we want to address this issue because actually relying solely on the police and the court system is not actually going to take us very far because of, as you say, re-traumatization, but also the sort of carceral feminist, lock them up, throw away the key. Actually, victim survivors themselves don't necessarily want that as the final outcome. So that makes them even more reluctant to talk about it and certainly to go to the police. So thinking more constructively and more imaginatively about other forms of justice, other forms of restoration of a woman's dignity or person's dignity, I think is really important here. I would agree with you there. And I think it's a huge barrier to reporting. What we've seen is that so many survivors don't actually want to go down that route at all. Obviously, first of all, they know that it's like a 2% chance of anything, you know, justice being received. And second of all, they don't want to be re-traumatized. And third of all, they don't necessarily want their perpetrator to go to prison. I think so many people want an acknowledgement and an apology, you know, an opportunity to speak out and articulate their experience and feel validated and and a chance to heal. And that doesn't always include the traditional form of justice, especially in the state that it's in, in this country (laughs) today. But if the Victims Commissioner said that basically we have decriminalised rape because of our lack of prosecution and our lack of conviction. The conviction rate is so low that you can be pretty sure if you're a man and you rape somebody that nobody's going to come knocking on your door and nobody's going to send you to prison. When we're talking like this about what do victims want to do, are we not in danger of kind of going with that to saying, well, let's decriminalise rape and then I'm feeling very old-fashioned here because I'm going like, surely we don't want to go further down the road of saying it's not a criminal offence, it's an offence against a person and you have to, like the medieval world, compensate her in some way for that experience. Clearly, a custodial sentence is something that a lot of victim survivors do want and is something that may be appropriate. And also, very clearly, I don't think anyone is arguing for the decriminalisation of these horrendous crimes. But it is about asking the victim survivors themselves what is appropriate for you and listening to their voices a lot more than we are doing right now. And do we think that would reduce the amount of rape, which is clearly the biggest thing? Well, it would actually increase conviction rates because one of the many problems that we have when cases get to court is that jurors say, oh, um, it's not as serious enough to send them into prison. And so they end up getting no punishment whatsoever. And that sends a huge message out to people that not only are you going to get away with it, but actually, it's not that bad what you did. You know, we don't want to send out that message to people. Whereas with lesser penalties and different ways of giving back the dignity for victim survivors, we're actually spreading a different message, which is this is just not right what people generally boys and men, are doing. As Soma was saying, it's the culture that's got to change. 
Yes, the culture is in desperate need of changing. Education for young people, old people, it's so important. You know, if you haven't spoken to your child about sex and sending nudes and porn, consent and boundaries and respect and empathy, if they experience sexual violence, how can you expect them to come to you? An older generation needs to become knowledgeable and attentive and aware and in tune with the experiences of young people in a social media digital age and how sexual violence is existing on a different platform in a different realm. So there needs to be this kind of bridging of generational gaps and sharing of knowledge and and language and terminology. So we're empowering everyone to be able to not only identify these experiences, but report and, and seek support if something has happened to them. Joanna, what do you think? You know, the whole sex education, no means no. I mean, come on. And we've surely gone well beyond that in terms of consent. One of the messages that certainly I believe we need to be getting across is actually, you know what, boys and men, you get better sex if, if your partner really wants it. Um, so this affirmative consent thing means you're going to get better sex as well. Soma Sarah, Joanna Burke, thank you very much. If you have been affected by any of the content in this episode of Normal Women, please do take a look at Soma's website, everyonesinvited.uk, and more help and support can be found via the charity, rapecrisis.org.uk. Next time on the Normal Women podcast, Normal Women are a weaker vessel. I'll be looking at the battle for equality in heaven as well as earth. When were women good enough to be vicars? With former pop star and former vicar Reverend Richard Coles and historian of the ordination of women, Dr Grace Heaton. I do hope you'll join us. All of the themes explored in this series can be found in my book, Normal Women, 900 Years of Making History. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please tell the normal women in your life about it. Hope you'll be joining me soon. The Normal Women podcast was written and presented by me, Philippa Gregory, and features the voice talents of James Good, Melanie Gutteridge and Rufus Wright. The producer is Marilyn Rust. Executive producer is Kate Ford. Sound design is by Tom Birchall and includes original music by Juliet Pochin. Commissioning editor for William Collins is Arabella Pike. My book, Normal Women, 900 Years of Making History, published by William Collins, is also available as an audiobook. There are links to both in the show notes. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.